0: Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever, and this is episode 409. I stopped announcing the episode numbers a while back. Because of a change Apple made, where they decided that going forward, they wanted episode numbers added via tags instead of being manually typed into the show title, and that kind of made things a bit more complicated, especially since I didn't like numbering certain episodes, like the documentary and holiday specials, which I preferred to view as, you know, standalone episodes. But I decided, hey, screw it, I like announcing the show numbers, adds an air of professional I think. (laughs) Kinda. But it's probably not, you know, a precise reflection of how many episodes I've actually done, because I've published unnumbered episodes in the past, and now number tags are being automatically applied to even reruns, you know, through Podbean. But once again, hey, close enough, episode 409 it is. And speaking of holiday specials, mediocre segue, I noticed to my chagrin that the recent holiday episodes I re-released, the Salem Witch Trial episode and the Brief History of Halloween, weren't showing up in my Apple Podcast app, but they were showing up on Stitcher, so I'm not sure what that's all about. Maybe it was just some sort of glitch, possibly due to the fact that I previously released reruns of those same episodes with the same title and the same attached file so I went back and added Halloween Replay quote-unquote 2021. Hopefully that helps. Probably not, but hey, can't hurt. And while it looks like I'm already doing a little impromptu housekeeping here, I might as well mention that while working on the YouTube version of that recent episode where I attempt to take care of a bunch of assorted mistakes that had been piling up, I ironically noticed that I had said things in that correction episode that now needed correcting. Classic Phil. Referring to myself in the third person, gross. Anyway, I went in and added the, why am I cracking myself up? And, And added the needed corrections while editing the YouTube version. And then I exported it to audio and yanked down the original, man, this is getting complicated. Yanked down the original version from the podcast feed and replaced it with that corrected version. And when you replace an audio file like that, it wipes out your hits or download count for that episode and sets it back to zero. But, oh well, better than leaving, you know, bad information out there. And supposedly with Podbean, if you give the new file the same name as the old one, it'll just overwrite it and let you keep your episode hits. But in actuality, it never really seems to work that way. Anyway, some of the corrections or mistakes include how I was talking about that deadly shooting on the set of Rust, where Alec Baldwin was handed a gun that was supposedly quote unquote cold, but as we know it actually contained live ammo. Well, while talking about that, I described a quote unquote cold gun as a firearm that's loaded with blanks as opposed to a hot gun, which would be a gun containing live ammo, but it seems to be the case that a cold gun is actually a gun that's completely empty, not even loaded with blanks, which, as I mentioned in the edited version, makes the error seem that much more egregious. I could kind of see how someone might, even though it would still be an inexcusable mistake, um, you know, a competent expert should be able to tell the difference between a blank and a live round, but I could kind of see how someone might get confused as to what kind of ammo is in the gun, but to completely mistake a loaded gun for an empty gun and then hand it off to someone announcing cold gun? It's crazy, but yeah, I was watching an interview with a professional armorer on YouTube, and it was pretty interesting. They actually explained the difference between a dummy round and a blank. I guess a dummy round is just, you know, kind of, um it's just a prop bullet, it's not even meant to be fired, and doesn't contain any um, powder or a primer, you'd use them in a scene where maybe you see a character loading a gun but, you know, without firing it, or if, you know, it's kind of like a western and you see a character with an ammo belt or a bandolier with the bullets all over it, Uh, something like that, but they don't actually do anything. And then you have blanks, which look somewhat different from a live bullet or live round, but can still be fired, and you use them when you want to reproduce the sound and the look, you know, the muzzle flash, etc., of a live round without actually firing a live round. And then another mistake I correct in that edited version is how I was talking about a particular interview Jordan Peterson had done with Rolling Stone several years ago, But it wasn't Rolling Stone, it was Vice. Uh, yeah, so, anyway, uh, enough with the corrections, (laughs) let's get on with the show. So this is a story that definitely caught my attention and that I really wanted to cover, but I wasn't able to find the time until now. So back on Halloween, which happened to fall on a Sunday this year, Marilyn Manson led or took part in a prayer circle with Justin Bieber and Kanye West, who I guess just goes by ye now, am I pronouncing that correctly? Y E, as part of one of Kanye or ye's Sunday services. Very bizarre. And everyone, including Manson, is dressed in white. And wearing what appear to be big rubber rain boots. And the video quality is not the best, so maybe they were made out of leather and kind of like engineer boots, I don't know. And at one point, Justin Bieber is on the ground and he's rubbing Marilyn Manson's feet. Very odd. And so, is this supposed to be symbolic of the washing of feet in the Bible, a kind of act of humility or purification? Or is Bieber just an absurd wackadoo? To quote Lucian Greaves of the satanic temple. Why can't it be both? But yeah, really weird. And I mentioned that, you know, they were all wearing white, but it almost looks like Manson in particular is wearing some sort of burqa or ninja outfit. It's kind of like a hood face mask combo. So he kind of looks like a more awkward version of Storm Shadow from G.I. Joe. And so I've mentioned numerous times how I'm a big fan of Manson's music. I was a young edgelord slash tortured artist type back in the day. And even though I like to think I've emotionally matured over the years, I still like a lot of the same dark music I used to listen to when I was younger. And I also like some newer dark bands like Ghost, etc. too. And so I did a couple of episodes not that long ago where I talk about some of the recent abuse-slash-assault allegations that have been leveled at Manson by former girlfriends and domestic partners, including Evan Rachel Wood and Game of Thrones actress Esme Bianco. The allegations were pretty serious and disturbing and ranged from false imprisonment and drugging to cutting, electrocution, and even non-consensual penetration on the heels of the drugging, at least in the case of Evan Rachel Wood. And in fairness to Manson, he hasn't had his day in court yet. He hasn't been convicted of anything relating to these cases in a court of law. But in the court of public opinion, from a common sense lay perspective, I think it's safe to kind of take a where there's smoke, there's probably fire approach. And it kind of reminds me in that sense of Cosby and Weinstein. Sounds like a really bad law firm. Um, But I think Um, The Manson situation is similar in the sense that you have an alarming number of accusers, many of them fairly high-profile people themselves with established careers, coming forward with very similar stories, And a cynical person or a rabid fan might respond, well, maybe the allegations or their stories are similar because they're made up and the accusers are just copying each other. I think that's unlikely. I think the stories are probably similar because there's something to them and that this man, Brian Hugh Warner, Marilyn Manson, may very well be a serial abuser. And I hate saying that because Manson is one of my favorite artists, and until all this he was actually one of my favorite people in general. I loved how he was seemingly able to compartmentalize, he was able to exorcise his demons and express his dark side through his music and his art, and then off stage and in interviews came across as this highly intelligent, thoughtful, and charming human being with a laid-back, quirky sense of humor. I really love that about him. And I guess in fairness, that side of him probably is genuine to an extent. People can be very complicated, and that's the shame. There probably is a good guy in there somewhere, but there's probably also this darker, pathological side where he feels the need to dominate, exploit, and humiliate others. But I made the personal decision that no matter what I'm going to keep listening to his music because I did stop to ask myself the ethical question of whether or not it was right to continue to enjoy and or support the music of someone who may have harmed or exploited other human beings. But if I stopped listening to every artist I like who purportedly abused or mistreated you know, another person, I'd probably have to delete at least half of my music library. John Lennon admitted that he used to beat women, including his first wife, uh, Cynthia, I believe. There's anecdotes about Jimi Hendrix supposedly becoming violent and abusive at times when he drank. I'm a huge Doors fan, and furthermore, I'm specifically a huge Jim Morrison fan, and there's some stories about... Jim that are kind of disturbing. There's the infamous story about how Jim got drunk at a party, grabbed Janis Joplin's head, and forced it into his lap or crotch, causing her, you know, to break down and cry. But if it's the same incident, I think she actually got a shot and she hit him in the head with a whiskey bottle before she left, so... She knew how to handle herself. And then, and I think it may have been in um, No One Here Gets Out Alive, but I've read so many Doors slash Morrison biographies, that's kind of hard to keep them all straight in my mind. But there was this claim that Jim supposedly had a thing for young, wayfish female prostitutes, and that on one occasion, he supposedly violently ripped one such girl's rings off her fingers and proceeded to roughly anally penetrate her. And I think there was another story where John Densmore, the drummer for The Doors, walked into an apartment to find Jim Morrison standing behind a girl whose top was partially unbuttoned, and uh, Jim was holding a knife to her. So, you know. And I really don't want to have to issue any more corrections, so hopefully I got at least the gist of those anecdotes correct. I've literally read, literally, the uh, Jim Morrison biography... Uh, no One Here Gets Out Alive by Danny Sugarman and Jerry Hopkins at least four or five times. I think I read the John Densmore biography twice. There was another more controversial biography. I forget the, um, the author's name. Uh, and th- there was one or two other ones too, but it's been so long. you know. I'm just trying to add the caveat that hopefully it wasn't so long ago that I unintentionally distorted anything. But yeah, so it's complicated. I think you have to do your best to be a decent human being and recognize and denounce the kind, you know, that kind of behavior, but without throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. But the reason why I bring all this up is that people are wondering why the hell Marilyn Manson took part in a celebrity prayer circle. And to be honest, I don't know much about Kanye West or Yee, but I think I read that his Sunday services are kind of non-denominational, but still might be more or less Christian. So um, not something you'd expect Marilyn Manson to take part in. So one theory is that this was Manson trying to kind of uncancel himself that people love a redemption story and an infamous shock rocker who used to tear, you know, tear up bibles on stage suddenly finding god and turning over a new leaf. I just say god in a really new englandy way. God people you know that people would eat that up and christian types would probably welcome him with open arms and a lot of that negative attention might suddenly turn positive another possibility is that he's undergoing a genuine spiritual or personal transformation maybe all the negative attention having to do with the public allegations of assault and abuse has spurred him to kind of take a personal inventory and caused him to want to you know turn his life around I'm not sure if I buy that. I think most, you know, the most likely scenario is that it's just Manson being Manson. Manson likes being weird. He likes, you know, spectacle and keeping people guessing. And on some level, this might be performance art or an example of his offbeat sense of humor, even if others aren't necessarily in on the joke. Very surreal, though. It's like, oh, I had this weird dream that Marilyn Manson was wearing a burqa and Justin Bieber was rubbing his feet. Yes, yeah, sometimes reality, stranger than dreams or fiction. So I was going to briefly cover that Astroworld crowd crush incident that took place back on the 5th, I believe. I remember it was a Saturday and I was up at my sister's place doing some work for her. And I went inside to talk to her for a minute, and there was this breaking news story about a crowd stampede and eight deaths at some kind of music event. And as someone who's always really been into music, I'd always hoped that, despite however old I got, that I'd never become that guy who was just out of touch with the music of the day. But I have to admit, I had absolutely no idea who the hell Travis Scott was before this. Because of the name Travis, at first I thought maybe he was some country singer or washed up, watered down punk or new metal guy from the 90s. I had no idea. And I was way off the mark. Apparently, he's a really popular rap or hip-hop artist who's also married or in a relationship with one of the Jenners or Kardashians, I think. How many of them are there? It seems like everyone's married to one. But even though I like to think or hope that I'm at least a somewhat decent and empathetic person, to be honest, I just feel so desensitized by all the mass shootings and terror attacks over the years, assorted other stories of human loss and carnage. That when I hear eight people died at a live music event, it honestly doesn't phase me much. And yet on the other hand, I'm still deeply affected by stories of people harming animals. Not sure what that says about me as a person. But I think that's actually fairly common. It's probably because animals have this innocent childlike quality and our relationship with our own species can be pretty complicated. But don't get me wrong, if I leave my kind of detached bird's eye view of the situation and zoom in on the individual loss, then I start to feel something. The death toll was 8, but I think recently another person, a young woman, succumbed to her injuries, bringing the death toll up to 9, And actually, these were all young people, which shouldn't be too surprising, I guess, given the nature of the venue or event. But some were really young. I believe the youngest victim was only 14, the oldest being 27, still fairly young, relatively speaking. I wish I could be 27 again. So when I think of how, you know, these are kids whose parents are never going to get to see them alive again, then yeah, that gets me. But even though generally on a more macro or surface level the stories of mass tragedy don't tend to phase me all that much, there was one lurid or bizarre component or detail that did get my attention. There were claims that someone had supposedly been going around the crowd randomly injecting people with a syringe, and this was being reported early on while the story was still breaking. I mentioned hearing about this story while at my sister's last Saturday. That's a lot of alliteration. Unintentional. She had a mainstream news station on while all this was unfolding. And they were talking about this idea that someone may have been walking around injecting people then. And that was while there was still a crowd at the event, unless the footage they were showing was from earlier. And so it was this idea that someone was walking around like Dexter Morgan injecting people that maybe want to cover the story, but turns out that was probably just a bunch of BS, and Dexter only injects bad guys. I actually watched the first episode of Dexter New Blood pretty good. I was a huge uh, Dexter fan back in the day, although the later seasons were pretty crappy. Anyway, I guess there were a number of unresponsive people at the show who were given Narcan, and this may have in part you know, led people to conjecture that someone may have been randomly injecting people with something, perhaps an opioid. And supposedly there was so many injured people at the show that it became a triage situation. And I guess it's pretty standard protocol that if an EMT or first responder is presented with an unresponsive person, that they'll often inject them with Narcan, even if they're not sure, you know, it's an overdose, just to be safe or to rule out the possibility that it is an overdose. And then there was this story, and I first heard this on the local news a few days ago, where they reported it as an EMT, that, or that an EMT had claimed that he had felt himself being pricked in the neck right before losing consciousness and then needing to be revived with Narcan. But I believe that reporting was wrong, and it was actually a security guard, uh, not an EMT. But then just recently, the local police chief and the guard himself ended up walking back that story, and the security guard in question actually retracted the claim. So no, it looks like most likely there wasn't a syringe-wielding psychopath in the audience injecting people with opiates. And so the final story I'm going to cover today is about a Newsmax correspondent who got in trouble for claiming COVID vaccines contain a satanic ingredient that allows you to be tracked. And to be honest, I'm getting really sick of talking about COVID and vaccines, but you add the adjective satanic to anything and you've got my attention. And so this is from the Daily Beast, And I know, I know, my more right-leaning listeners or viewers probably aren't going to like that the source I'm choosing is the Daily Beast. Uh, But, uh, Beast, like the Beast of the Apocalypse. But I think as long as the basic facts are right, and I've read this story, you know, from a number of different sources... And the Daily Beast seems to have it right, so I don't think it should matter. And I myself, as you probably know, am a left-leaning guy, but I try to be fair, hopefully fair enough that anyone can listen. Well, within reason, up to a certain point, because, you know, if you get too thin-skinned, if you hear someone poking fun of religion a bit, then, eh, you know, I don't know. I'm trying not to drive people away, but I also have to stay true to myself. But anyway, let's uh, dig in here. So, the article is entitled Newsmax Star Returns to Twitter and is permanently banned hours later for Vax Insanity. After serving a seven-day suspension for absurdly claiming vaccines contained a satanic link tracker, Emerald Robinson doubled down on those claims and was booted from Twitter. It looks like it's by someone named uh, Justin Barragona, I think it is. It's dated to uh, November 9th. Newsmax White House correspondent Emerald Robinson has been permanently suspended from Twitter for repeatedly violating the social platform's rules against spreading COVID 19 misinformation, according to a spokesman for the tech giant. Twitter initially gave Robinson, who has relentlessly pushed anti-vaccine falsehoods for more than a year, a temporary timeout last week after she posted an insanely absurd claim that the COVID-19 vaccines contained a glowing tracking device that was linked to the devil. And here's a quote. Dear Christians, the vaccines contain a bioluminescent marker called luciferase so that you can be tracked, Robinson declared last Monday. Read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. And so I have a couple of things to add here. Firstly, I don't think there's some satanic tracker or other kind of tracking device in the vaccines. And even if there were, I don't understand this bizarre obsession with not being tracked. And I know this point is far from original, but if you have a cell phone, they can already track you. And I'm thinking like someone like me, I get out of bed, I go to work, I come home, maybe, you know, as boring as it sounds, I stop at the post office or, you know, the supermarket. Once in a while, I go out and do something social. Why would I even care if the government you know, knows my comings and goings. If they know what time I leave my driveway and go to my hellish day job (laughs) or what time I return to my, you know, driveway at night. I have no idea. And I get it that on an instinctual level, no one likes the idea or the feeling that their privacy is being invaded or that uh, that they're being followed. I think that's like a deeply human instinct. But... When you start to project that onto, you know, other things and um it leads you into conspiracy theories, that there's trackers inside of vaccines or whatever, I think people just like to fantasize that their lives are more exciting than they are, like the government's gonna send a pack of drones after you and you're running up a hill with your rifle, you know, and it's like, come on, man. Do you think the government gives a shit you know? when you go to the Walmart or whatever, holy crap. Unless is there some reason why you're afraid someone might be tracking you, plan to blow something up or plan on stealing some kids, you know, if you're like a, living a normal life, you know, who cares? It's almost strangely conceited or presumptuous, you know, to presume that your life is exciting enough that someone would actually be interested, you know, in following you around. And the other thing I wanted to chime in on is she brings up the book of Revelation. Read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. And a point that I've long found fascinating and that I've brought up on the show over the years, you know, again and again. And I think, I'm not sure if this is still the scholarly. Consensus, but seemed like the consensus used to be that the book of Revelation only made its way into the canonical Bible, into biblical canon, due to a possible case of mistaken identity. And the thinking goes that in the early church, there may have been this misconception that Revelation was written by the Apostle John, when in fact it may have very well been written by another figure named John, a figure known as John of Patmos, uh, an exile living on the Greek island of Patmos, uh, appropriately enough. And the author of Revelation actually identifies himself as John and as uh, being on the island of Patmos. And this idea that it may have been written by a different John uh, goes all the way back to early church fathers like Eusebius, who thought they recognized a tonal difference, a difference in writing style between the Gospel of John thought to have been written by John the Evangelist, a.k.a. John the the Apostle John. And we can get into, you know, a whole discussion about the names attributed to the Gospels and who actually wrote them. But anyway, they noticed a tonal or stylistic difference between the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation. And there was argument and debate over whether or not this book, um, Revelation, should even be included in biblical canon. But I always found it very interesting that, to reiterate, uh, this book, the book of Revelation, which has had such a huge influence on shaping Christianity, that it may only be in the Bible because of a case of mistaken identity. Eh, you know, food for thought. And another thing about the book of Revelation, yeah, I'm going to go on with this a bit longer, bear with me, is that um, it's thought to be a text that is very relevant to the time it was written in, and that it's chock full of political symbolism. So a lot of the lurid imagery, you know, these beasts and multi-headed dragons and everything else may actually be metaphors for earthly powers of the day that were oppressive towards Christianity etc i believe the book of revelation was thought to be written during the reign of the uh, roman emperor domitian who was not very kind to christians should we say and then also it's thought that the you know the infamous number of the beast 666 that this is actually coded symbolism for the emperor nero who is also a uh, persecutor of christians and i know i think it's both greek and hebrew where um the letters also had numerical value and i think it's greek that the number 666 that you can you can decode that into nero caesar Or that the numerical value of Nero Caesar is 666. But I think the greater point I'm getting at is that you have this fascinating, albeit man-made text, which probably almost didn't make it into the Bible, and yet people put so much importance on it, you know? But anyway, just to remind us where we left off... um, We're at her, quote, Dear Christians, the vaccine contains a bioluminescent marker called luciferase so that you can be tracked. Read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. And then the article continues, While some vaccine research has used the enzyme luciferase, which has bioluminescent features, it is not an ingredient in any of the coronavirus vaccines currently on the market. Furthermore, Luciferase does not have any satanic associations, despite deriving its name from the Latin word Lucifer, which means light-bearing. Besides receiving the reprimand from Twitter at the time, Robinson was also benched by Newsmax over her blatantly false claims about the vaccines. Prior to taking Robinson off the air pending a review of her anti-vax social media posts, Newsmax also publicly rebuked its controversial star. And so here's a quote, Newsmax strongly believes and has reported that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. We do not believe the vaccines contain any toxic materials or tracking markers, and such false claims have never been reported on Newsmax. And the quote continues, or there's another follow-up quote, the many medical experts appearing on Newsmax have supported the use of the vaccine. Then the article continues, after serving her a week-long Twitter lockout, the conservative firebrand returned to the social media site with a fury on Tuesday morning. Proclaiming that she was back on Twitter, at least, seemingly throwing shade at Newsmax for sidelining her. Robinson then promoted her account on Substack, a subscription newsletter service. Join me at Substack today before I'm banned again, she wrote, sharing a link to a post in which he doubled down on her disproven claims about luciferase and vaccines. Robinson would continue to implore her followers to join her Substack page, which included a new post on Tuesday that again suggested the vaccines were linked to Satan. And here's a quote. One more thing. The new COVID-19 antibody test is called Satan, but spelled S-A-T-I-N. So more like satin, which kind of reminds me. I mentioned Ghost earlier. They have that song. uh, What's it called? Year Zero where they kind of spice it up instead, make it sound more exotic. Instead of saying Satan, they they pronounce it Satan. Hail Satan, Archangelo. Yeah, you know. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Welcome year zero. Um, the anti... you didn't want to hear me saying Anyway, so one more thing. The new COVID-19 antibody test is called SATIN <laughs> and, is, and uses luciferase. No, I'm not kidding, she wrote. It's not an accident that they've given this name to this test. It's a warning. Eventually, Twitter decided to shut her account down <laughs> for good. And I know I'm going to catch hell for this, but I could care less. You know, it's a private company. Until, you know, the government starts regulating it like a utility, they can boot anyone they want. And I know, slippery slope and all that. I'm not going to shed any tears that this nut job can't fearmonger about vaccines being satanic anymore on, on a private fucking uh, social media platform. Pardon the language. And so I actually looked it up because I had never heard of it. But SATIN, S-A-T-I-N, stands for Serological assay based on split-tripart nanoluciferase. That's a mouthful. And I'm actually looking at a PubMed.gov article here, dated to March of this year, and it's entitled, A Homogenous Split Luciferase Assay for Rapid and Sensitive Detection of Anti-SARS-CoV-2 Antibodies. Better diagnostic tools are needed to combat the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Here to meet this urgent demand, we report a homogenous immunoassay to detect IgG antibodies against SARS CoV 2. This serological assay called Satin or Satin, S A T I N, is based on a tripart nano luciferase TNLUC approach in which the spike protein of SARS CoV 2 and protein G, fused respectively to two different TNLUC tags, are used as antibody probes. So, way above my pay grade, man. <laughs> I'm getting way out of my depth. But hopefully you get the point that, um, all you know, from all this scientific jargon, that this isn't uh, satanic. Okay. Satanic, perhaps. S-A-T-I-N. But not satanic. Okay, anyway, uh, I'm feeling giddy with uh, sleep deprivation. I have to get up at like 6.30 tomorrow morning. It's now 10.57 p.m. on a Sunday evening. So I'm going to call this one a wrap. As always, thanks everyone for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not there that often, which is probably why I don't care if uh, other people get kicked off. Solipsism for the win kidding and uh if you want to help the show out monetarily you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and help support what i do here for as little as 99 cents a month all right brothers and sisters until next time